I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Georgia Summers about her fantasy novel, The City of Stardust. Georgia is half British, half Trinidadian, and spent most of her life living across the world, including in Russia, Colombia, and the US. She now lives in London. Georgia has previously worked as a bookseller, a student librarian, and an editor at Tor UK, Pan Macmillan's fantasy imprint. In this episode, we discuss how she was inspired by stories from her childhood describing portals to another world, using real places to inspire her fantastical world building, and her insight as a former editor, and whether she writes with commercial decisions in mind. But first, here's Georgia with an excerpt from The City of Stardust. A whisper is chasing across the world. A woman in Italy hears it, and that night she locks up her house. She bundles her children into the car, along with as many belongings as she can pack. When they ask where they're going, she only accelerates down the twisting countryside roads, grim determination reflecting back at her frightened children in the rearview mirror. The whisper reaches a jeweller in Seattle, who promptly faints after scanning the letter. He keeps trading. What else can he do but buys a gun, storing it carefully underneath the till point? Six months later, he's discovered dead in his back office, slumped over his desk with the gun still in his hand. The police assume suicide and close the case, even though his wife insists they were being watched by a woman who could vanish into thin air. In Osaka, Gabriel Everly overhears the whisper as he sits alone in a cafe, dusk falling across the horizon. He closes his eyes, holding on to it for a painful moment before releasing it back into the world. The next evening, he's in a different city, in a different country, and only then does he feel the tension in his shoulders give way. The whisper gathers pace like a boulder careening downhill. It passes through telephones and hidden letters burned after reading, encrypted emails and clandestine meetings by candlelight. And somewhere in between, it crosses to a different world, carried on a breeze to a city of snow and starlight, 
where it has already been circulating for quite some time. Where is Marianne Everly? Hi, Georgia. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The City of Stardust. Hello. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. Can you start then by telling us what The City of Stardust is all about? Yes, so the city of Stardust is about the Everly family who are cursed. So every generation, they lose one of their best and brightest, this sort of mysterious woman called Penelope, who never ages, she never gets sick, and she never forgives a debt. So 10 years ago, Violet's mother goes off to try and break the curse and vanishes. Um, And now Violet must go off and find her mother or end up becoming the curse's next victim. And so to do so, she sort of ends up in a sort of secretive, magical underground filled with these like shadowy scholars, um, powerful gods, vengeful monsters and kind of all the sort of horrific and wondrous things in between. It's such an imaginative premise and I I just can't imagine where it all began. So can you give us a flavour of where that initial spark came from so the the sort of slightly strange truth is that this is like a real hodgepodge of ideas like um i think you know most of the time when i write i sort of tend to think about a book coming from one particular scene i have in my head or one particular like setup but for this one it really was like i just have a bunch of different things i love and stick them all in there and see what happens Um, So, I mean, I think I've always loved portal stories. Uh, I think, you know, I read a lot of those growing up, like, you know, Narnia and um, His Dark Materials. And, you know, I was also the child that was like, if I just sit in the wardrobe at the right time with the right book and I get the door closed all the way, the back of the portal, the back of the wardrobe will open and um, I'll be sucked into whatever magical adventure I was reading at the time. And it never happened. Um, but I tried quite hard for, for probably more years than I should have before I was like, oh, maybe maybe that's not going to happen. Um, I also wrote a short story at university about a man who made sort of these gifts out of this magical metal. Um, you know, th- I mean, it was everything. It was like there was spirit away, spirited away fan art that I really loved, which sort of shows um, Chihiro, who's the main character of the um, film, going back to this sort of tunnel Um where she has had this sort of amazing sort of like life-changing moment of magic with um this sort of boy haku and so she goes back as a slightly slightly older and sort of you know the the world doesn't open up to her again and she sort of says you know okay I'll, I'll come back tomorrow um and it really struck me as like you know well what if you like what does that singular moment look like what does it feel like to come away from that and just sort of go back to your normal life but know that there is this possibility of so much more out there. Um, I also wrote this book during the pandemic um, and it's quite a wide ranging book. Like, you know, know, my main character, Violet, she goes all over the world. And I was like, well, I am going nowhere. So I sort of wanted to have, write a book where she could go all the places that I couldn't at the time. And I get the sense just from you speaking that kind of fantasy is your, number one love and you were if you were going to write a book it would always be a fantasy book is that is that right or have you kind of played with other genres or had, had you tried to write a novel before this yeah so yeah I would say fantasy is definitely my like one big love um I read a lot I you know read I would say very widely I enjoy a really wide range of genres like you know like, 
uh, like everything from like, you know, nonfiction to fiction and, you know, that encompasses a big range. Um, but I will say in terms of writing, I just, for some reason, it's fantasy that really sticks with me. Um, and I've, I mean, I've always written, I wrote sort of roughly almost a book a year from about 13 onwards, thanks to the powers of NaNoWriMo for better <laughs> or for worse. Um, Have you completed it every year? Oh God, no. I, I think I got to about 19 or 20 and I was like, you know what? I'm actually a much, when I write slower, I write better and I pay more attention to what I'm doing. Um, and also, you know, I started to get things like a job and, you know, going outside more often. And that does, you know, to write a whole novel in a month is, is you know, mm-hmm. as I know now, is extremely challenging and to do it well. Um, but it was incredibly valuable just to have, you know, just to be able to sort of start and complete Um a project and to sort of do that over and over again um because you really start to learn the shape of a story that way I think yeah definitely um I think NaNoWriMo is really fun but it really takes it out of you and you realize by like the sort of 20th of November when you've got no plot left and you just don't know words anymore that you're literally just writing garbage just to get over the the word the word count for the day um but it is fun I would recommend it to people I've done it I think twice um Twice successfully, anyway. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it's a it's a very intense thing to do when you've got other commitments. So maybe not yeah. <laughs> all the time. Um, I think it's worth. I definitely think it's worth doing if yeah. you if you know. I think it's one of those things where it's you know you might not hit the fifty thousand word mark, but you know the fact that you're joining so many people doing. Mm you know, all embarking on such a big creative journey together. I think that that in itself is really valuable. And, you know, I always like to think that even if you, you know, even if it's like 30,000 words or 20,000 words, those are still words you didn't mm. have at the beginning of the year. So in that sense, it is super valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the the whole kind of idea of a community around you doing the same thing at the same time is really motivating. It kind of almost encourages you to think when, even when you really don't want to, to kind of carry on because you sort of feel like you're, you're letting letting the team down if you don't but um yeah <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit more about the um Everly family can you kind of give us a bit more about their um their background their kind of how you created this family yeah so the Everlys are essentially three siblings um and then one daughter slash niece so the Everly's start with sort of um, Marianne Everly, who's Violet's mother. She's the eldest of the siblings. And so she goes off to um, go break this curse uh, when Violet is you know, very, very young and never comes back. So in her absence, her sort of Violet's two uncles, Ambrose and Gabriel, um, sort of step up to become parents for, you know, as best as they can be. Um, and I always think of them as like the jumper uncle and the leather jacket uncle. Um, so... Ambrose is kind of, you know, the quiet academic uncle. He's, um, he loves his jumpers. I, I was like looking back, I was like, oh, I do reference jumpers quite a lot in this <laughs> book. Um, I was called when I was writing it. Um, and he sort of is sort of Violet's main parental figure. Um, and, you know, I it was really fun to kind of play with the idea that like, you know, none of them really, you know, neither of them sort of set out to be parents. Um, and, you know, I think, Ambrose is very young as well. He's the youngest sibling. Um, so it was really important to me to try and get across that kind of sense of sort of imperfect love. You know, they're not, they really are just sort of human and sort of thrust into this sort of position of responsibility quite unexpectedly. And it's sort of, you know, it was really important to me to to sort of get across that, you know, that they're not, they are really aren't 
perfect and you know some of the decisions they make um are worse for Violet um rather than you know even if they're well-intentioned so yeah it was kind of it was really fun to play with that and sort of play with this kind of sense of you know the sort of sibling rivalries and sort of all of this sort of happening uh around Violet and really affecting her day-to-day mm. and Violet herself uh, one thing I thought was really interesting was that in some ways she's quite a uh, and every woman, a kind of ordinary character, she works in a coffee shop, but then you're mixing the ordinary with a very extraordinary world and magic and curses. And I wondered whether this kind of mixture of the two was was intentional on your part. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think that that's, I think for a portal story, that's really, that sort of juxtaposition is really key. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things that I personally love about them is the idea that you can turn around the corner or like open the the certain door, you know, climb, climb through the certain wardrobe and end up in this sort of extraordinary other world. Um, so it was really important for me that she sort of felt um, ordinary. And I think as well, that sort of makes all her adventures seem more extraordinary. You know, I think she goes off and does these things because she has to, but also coming, not coming from this sort of mysterious um sort of more magical background that all the other characters have and it's sort of very isolating for her I think um but I feel like that's sort of where her strength as a character comes from and her bravery as a character comes from mm-hmm. okay so let's talk about this world building and um the scope of this world you've created is just I'm in awe of anyone that can do this and I just wanted to hear about how you went about it do you have like diagrams and maps and notes and notebooks and pictures kind of all around your writing desk um did you plan it all meticulously or um did you kind of feel the way around it and think about kind of I guess the the tropes and the aspects of stories that you already love and kind of bring those into it how did it all work well, I think as my good friends could probably attest to, um, I don't plan anything in my life meticulously or otherwise. Um, I mostly just, you know, I I mean, to an extent, I did think about what I wanted to create. I also wanted to just add in things that I love. Like, you know, I love, I love sort of magical parties. I love sort of hot people at magical parties, <laughs> sort of swanning around in finery. Um, uh, you know, I love the sense of adventure. Um, so I think, you know, that for me was kind of part of it was just sort of add you know thinking about like what's you know Lainey Taylor has this amazing sort of advice which is sort of what's the coolest thing that can happen here um and that was really useful to sort of think about when I was sort of working on the world building um I knew I wanted to feel wanted it to feel like a fairy tale um so but you know not one that necessarily came from a specific retelling I really love that idea of like you know, like somebody's stumbled across a retelling of like a fake fairy tale almost um so that was really fun to think about uh, and I really hope that comes across in the book um, I also wanted the world to feel really big like you know you could kind of walk off the last page and just keep going um, and that does mean that you know you don't really understand maybe everything that's happened or you know there there's sort of some minor mysteries that are kind of left to be a bit mysterious um, and one author that I think does this amazingly is Garth Nix in his abortion trilogy which I loved growing up um, and it's one of those really sort of interesting worlds where, you know, the main character, Sabriel, is sort of walking through this land that is, you know, has obviously been once grand and is sort of now largely like ruins. And there's just there was just something so enticing about 
um, sort of her, like, for example, at one point she goes up these like massive set of stairs and she has no idea who's created the stairs or why they're there. But, you know, she knows they're there and that they've kind of had a magical element to it. Um, or she goes to like the 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 abortion house, which is sort of like the basically the magician house, and she sort of sort of gets to learn a little bit more about the people who were previously um, these sort of like uh, magicians, um, and um, it is just it's just such an extraordinary thing to be able to sort of drop in these details, just you know really feed your imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then leave it behind and leave it to be a bit mysterious and to leave you going, oh, my God, like, you know, I bet I could go and like walk in this world and uncover all these mysteries. It's like that was a feeling I really spent a lot of time thinking about when I was writing the book. Do you like kind of leaving those gaps then for readers? I mean, obviously, I think particularly um, kind of fantasy novels have uh, a fan following unlike other books um, and other genres where, you know, fans create their own interpretation of the world and you know make maybe their own law that slots nicely into one you've kind of created is that kind of something that you find quite exciting about creating a world you know it's really funny because I uh, unfortunately I kind of missed the the fan fiction boat for whatever reason because that that you know that's a lot of people sort of that around my age you know that was their like uh, foray into first forays and sort of writing and into sort of a writer community and the fantasy community and for some reason I I miss I completely missed that boat I had no idea it even existed until I got to university and I was like wait a minute people do this how like how cool <laughs> um but I was so I was mostly thinking about uh, you know that sort of sense of mystery and discovery and I sort of really wanted to go back to that kind of almost classical sense of adventure like you really you know you were kind of left to to know that there's so much more to this world and you could really see yourself there. Um, it's sort of, yeah, it's a, it was like a very delicate balance of making sure the reader has enough information, but not all the information. Um, and I wondered as well, obviously, to create a world that feels lived in and, and believable, you, you know, you have to make it as real as possible. And I wondered whether any part of um, Fidelis, was, which is the city, was it based on anywhere or inspired by like anything or particular places that you'd, you know, when you were in lockdown and you were wishing you were elsewhere, was it inspired by other things you'd seen? It, you know what? It actually was. Um, I think you know, this is, again, this is, it's not the most exciting sort of answer, but the truth is I love snow. Uh, I'm such like, I'm like, yes, I love snow. There's something so magical about it. I don't care. Like I am never going to get tired of it. I, you know, I'm like, I would like, beautiful snowy winters and then really gorgeous summers um and unfortunately being in England you kind of get neither um so I and I love mountains too I just think there's you know there's something about that landscape that feels really like freeing and adventurous and and really gorgeous um and so I I try so maybe like maybe sort of around 2015 2016 I went on a backpacking trip and actually a lot of the places that Violet goes to um, in that sort of particular section of the book, places that I went to she sort of almost follows the the journey. Um, and one of the places I went to was this sort of um, sort of French city in the mountains called Annecy. And it's really, really beautiful. And, and I ended up spending about a, a month there sort of, you know, a few more years uh, later on. Um, 
and it just it was there was just something about it that was like oh my god this feels so like like I did like like it's called like the little Venice of the Alps and it's so it's so beautiful there and I just thought that's like if if I could have if I could have that with snow um <laughs> that would be such a wonderful magical city to have <laughs> I would like to also ask obviously about we've talked about the world building but I wondered whether and you've said you're not a planner so I'm guessing I don't know what was the most challenging part of writing this book I mean maybe the plotting I don't know if you're not a planner maybe the plotting is harder but I don't know you tell me what was the hardest part of writing this book um everything no uh <laughs> but kind of kind true, of true, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think in truth, I think the thing that I really struggled with and the thing that I will probably always struggle with um, is doubt. I think that I think, you know, there are really long stretches of time where it's just you and your keyboard and this book you're creating. Um, and, you know, uh, on a sort of very technical level, a book is a series of, you know, story is a series of decisions. And a lot of time it's just you there staring at the screen going, have I made the right decision? And, you know, and, and they're not you know, there are smaller decisions, but there are big plot decisions and that can really affect the trajectory of the book, you know, and it's, so you're sort of there thinking, well, is this the story I want to tell? Is this the story that's going to appeal to the readers that I want? Is this, you know, is this going to be like one of those things that, that um, tanks the book? Um, and so, yeah, I think there are quite, quite a good few months sort of in between writing drafts where I was like you know I I hate like I hate this book I made a terrible decision um uh, but then of course the flip side of that is that you do get to points where you're like oh my god I've made the perfect decision here this is phenomenal everyone's gonna love it um so it really is kind of like you got you swing quite hard emotionally between those two sort of places um and then you forget about it all you know you the book you know you finish the book and it just vanishes from your memory um until the next time you write a book and then you're like oh oh I do remember this feeling um I will also say for this particular book it felt really it was really ambitious for me um there are not a lot of parameters around my world building because it takes place sort of you know largely in our world and so you know that does make it hard to make decisions when you've got sort of a lot of parameters around your book you sort of quite limit you can be quite limited in your options so that's sort of you know picking the best most interesting one but if you've got you very few then it then it sort of you have almost endless options um and then it becomes very difficult to decide what the best way forward is so I think just working out working out that and trusting myself that it would that it would pull through I think was the most important thing mm. it is hard when you're it's just you and the, I don't know, not the blank page, but the 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 doc word document, um, and you just think, I have no idea whether, I I, I guess I don't know, whether writers and I certainly sometimes feel like okay, this has potential, but you never know for sure. Was there a moment where you thought this novel had maybe more potential than other things you'd written? Did you have like a a kind of feeling that this had that kind of special ingredient or were you just kind of in the dark about it so I you know what it's really funny because there actually is I so I, I do this thing where I use Scrivener and on Scrivener you can add a bunch of documents or, or sort of whatever and I always have a document called the captain's log which is kind of where I write how I'm feeling which is how I know that I sort of had these like highs and these lows um and there's one there's one moment I remember where I'd written this like um you know for, for context um my book is sort of split up into different sections and sort of sort of 
bookmarking these sections are these sort of this is sort of fairy tale um and every kind of story is a different take on this sort of original fairy tale in the book um and I'd written the first one and it just you know there was just something about it that I really loved and I thought you know what maybe you know I really liked what I've done here maybe this could be something like like good um and I think that that's kind of the, that feeling I had when I thought well maybe what I've got is is going to be is going to be at least interesting Hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You said you have written for a long time since you were really young. I wondered whether there was a point in your life where you made a kind of conscious decision to turn your writing from a hobby and something you love doing into a career and you were an editor which we'll we'll talk about in a bit but was there a point in your mind where you thought okay now I'm going to try and aim to be published was was that kind of conscious thought in your mind I mean the really boring truth is that I don't remember I've always taken my writing seriously I mean I have a letter from Random House because when I was about nine or ten I I sent them like a like I think a handwritten letter um to ask about getting a novel published um and I have the you know I I have, you know that. it was bef before they were Penguin Random House so and I still have that and um you know it's very they obviously like this is the child this is a literal child who's 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 sort of sent this letter to us um so it's always been something that I've felt was really important to me um 
And it almost doesn't feel like a choice anymore. It just feels like something happened to me. And now I'm like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so I've been very, very, you know, lucky in that respect that I sort of knew what I wanted to do from literally before I could remember um, and that I've kind of had the resources to be able to pursue it. I'm interested to know, obviously, because you have been the editor and you've worked in publishing for a while, whether when you were writing, you were kind of conscious of things like comp titles, how the book would be marketed, like where where it would fit, how it would appeal to editors, or if that just wasn't on your mind at all, or do you think it's hard to get that out of your head because obviously it was your your job to kind of know all these things? Was it hard to separate the two or do you see them as quite different things? I, yeah, I think the truth is, is that once you kind of have a sense in your head, it is very difficult to sort of not have those little voices who are, you know, mm. secretly like, you know, the sales team, whatever in the background, you know, discussing something or your editor going, oh, we loved this, but you know, not this. And that's why we can't take it forward. Um, you know, I thought a lot about, and, and I guess as a writer, as an author, there's not a lot you can do on that kind of art business to you know art business scale like you you are really at the art end of the scale because you just don't have the resources the financial resources the connections to kind of push you up to the business end of the scale and you know that's also you know you know that is where the traditional publisher comes in um so you know the things I did think I could control were things like you know do I want this to be like a seven book series or do I want this to be a standalone um you know uh what kind of audience do I want do I want to write something that's sort of in quite a tricky subgenre to write you know um or do I want something that feels sort of maybe more accessible to people who don't read a huge amount of fantasy but might still really enjoy this so yes those were definitely those were sort of things I was thinking about but having said that I do also think that there are choices that I've made in the narrative that I wouldn't call sort of commercial decisions um you know, I think my ending is is maybe not the huge, I like my ending, but I don't think it's maybe like the most commercial decision to make, if that if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something, you know, and I think, you know, choosing to have a, a world that goes very unexplored in some aspects is maybe not a commercial decision. Um, but, but you know, those felt true to my book as well. Like the, like the reason why, you know, they are decisions because I said, I this is what I want my book to look like. Um, yeah, it is a very tricky balance, I think, between art and business. And I think, you know, it's it's always going to feel like a little bit of a struggle um, between the book that you, between maybe like, you know, everything that you want to write versus what is feasible in the publishing industry what's maybe what's realistic mm. um and that cha- you know of course that changes over the years and what's popular now will not be popular in 20 years from now um and what's popular now was also not popular 20 years ago um I will also say you, you do get blind spots even as an editor I wrote the first like 20,000 words in like as from the point of view of the characters as as sort of young teenagers and my agent was like ah oh, so do you want this book to be adult or YA and I was like adult definitely adult and he was like but you've you've written the big chunk of the book as you know as teenagers and I was like oh oh yeah I should know that <laughs> so you know I definitely wouldn't say it's not it's not sort of a wizard sort of calculating in their tower like what the ultimate mm. the ultimate commercial novel looks like you know there's I definitely had like quite a few blind spots um, when it came to my own work. I think that's one thing that writers find kind of frustrating about the industry is the kind of 
almost it's it's helpful to know these things and to be thinking of you know comp titles marketing all that stuff but like you said kind of trends change so fast that you really would struggle to write to the market or what the market wants or what certain editors want because when you think about how long it takes to publish a book you're talking two years 18 months down the line by that point everyone might be particularly fed up of a certain type of genre or book or idea and then if you've written a book that fits in that you might think I've I really missed the boat there so I think it's hard um but I don't I don't think I don't think you should necessarily lead by those things but have them in your head at, at, at a certain point and think you know I always remember my agent asking me which I think is a really good question to think about if you were on a like a literary festival panel or a book festival panel who would be sitting either side of you like which authors would be sitting next to you and that's kind of how you think about who's in your who's in your gang who's like going to be on the same shelf as you kind of thing and I think that's quite handy even if you're not going you know really deep in terms of you know this is my comp title and these are the themes and this is the you know just to kind of think about those things even in a vague way just even if you're like well I like this writer so maybe they can sit next to me (laughs) that works yeah that's such a great that's such a great question it's a thing like a really a really good way of thinking about it that sort of um maybe takes slightly less pressure off you if you're not mm. if you know you're sort of starting to if it sort of starts to feel too like analytical to mm, look at definitely. sort of comp titles and be like well this character is young in this but my character is old but otherwise it's very similar um I mean I always like to think as well about like looking at you know your favorite writers careers like what do they look like are you writing a, are they sort of writing a book every year uh, what kind of are they working in like a commercial space are they working in a more literary space are they writing a book every 10 years um, because that as well, I think, can sort of help guide you with what mm. you want your your career to, to look like long term. And of course, a lot of that is outside of your control. Um, but just having a think about, you know, well, are you a book a year? Right? You might not be. You might be a book every three years writer and that might be what works for you. But then, you know, you want to look at who's in your sort of area who's doing that. Because I think that can be sort of a helpful guide. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you give us a bit of an insight into your kind of getting your agent and how your book deal came about um kind of if you know how long it took or kind of what the stages were like if you can just give us the kind of that that kind of querying journey to to signing yeah so I got I got very very lucky I have to say um I had so it's about November 2019 I was sort of coming towards the tail I'd been querying my second sort of novel that I'd sort of sent out as an, as an adult um and um you know I'd had a lot of I've had a, I had a lot of I got to a point where I was like you know people really liked the pitch they really liked the first couple of chapters they were asking for the full manuscript and then it was like you know the full manuscript landed like a very sad soggy pancake <laughs> um and I was like, well, I know something's not working here. I know my weakness is mm-hmm. structure. Um, so I was like thinking like, how am I gonna solve this problem? And so while I was doing that, I was sort of feeling a bit deflated about all of this. And I started writing what would become the city of stardust. And then a couple months later, I saw this mentorship program offered. Um, and it was a program where you only needed to send the first 15 to 20,000 words. And I was like, great. Cause those are the, those are the only good words in my book. <laughs> um, 
So I sent that and I was very lucky. I got accepted into it um, and I got matched up with Robbie, who's still my agent now. Um, and so, so together we kind of worked on the book for about a year and a half. Um, I'm a very slow writer, it turns out. Um, and then, you know, we kind of sort of got to a point where we're like ready to go out. And we sort of went out in the last week of May, 2022. And I remember the day the day we went out because literally an hour later, my editor emailed back and was like, what what else is she writing? Like, what else is she writing? What kind of are her plans? And I remember going, oh my God, like this, this is, this is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a week later we had an offer, um, which was really, you know, it, I like even, you know, pub- I know publishing timelines are very varied. That is extremely unusual. Um, it was very exciting for me. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I got exceptionally lucky. You know, it landed on her desk at the right time, you know, it, you know, with her, with the right amount of workload for her. Um, you know, it was, it was a real sort of meeting of fortune. Mm. And obviously as a former editor, you've got that kind of insider insight, which we, all of us crave because, the industry is quite opaque in terms of the information that is um, well known, I guess, and, and easily um, accessible. So you obviously understand kind of how the publishing industry works. You've you've uh, been through it on the other side. Um, what do you think is important for debut authors to know when they sign a contract? Kind of practical advice or emotional advice just about kind of getting through that period of of being a debut of um you know being thrust out into the world with this with this first book um i would say that the push and pull of art and business does exist it is there it is very frustrating and it can be frustrating on both sides which i think is important to acknowledge you know i think publishers you know we you know we go in to publishing predominantly because we love books mm. um but for you know for authors who are signing that very first contract you know I I don't I don't know if anybody really talks about this but buying a book as an editor is hard work uh like it's not just your editor being like I've seen it I like it let's buy it I wish it was like that um <laughs> so you know it's like you know you've got to fill out a whole bunch of forms you have to go to a bunch of meetings and you have to get everybody else on board so it means mm-hmm. talking to like the sales team marketing and publicity um finance production you know depending on what your book is how your book is going to be produced um, and, you know, you, you sort of will send it out for reads and sometimes it's sort of widely across the company. And so, you know, the, you know, the rights team will be looking at it and everybody has to say yes. Everybody has to be on board with the book because it is not just the editor's time. It is everybody's time. So when, you know, a book ends up, you know, and then, of course, you have to sort of go through the process of of, acquire, of acquiring, which is, you know, the acquisition process itself is a lot of working a lot of negotiating usually um so when a, you know you're signing that contract it's because everybody loved your book it's because everybody's excited about your book and the things they can do for it um which I think sometimes you know gets lost and it is it's hugely exciting um you know I think it's always really you know as as I recall it was always like so much fun to get like the book on the desk and be like oh my god I want this we have to but you know that's kind of and then you know that was kind of the most one of the most exciting and rewarding parts for me. Um, so I guess given how much uncertainty there is in publishing, um, that is sometimes nice 
to remember it's you know it really is like a it really is it, it's not just one person it's such a big team who are looking after your book and there are so many more people than you that you will ever know who look after your book hmm. um in some form or another and all want it to succeed and yes um and you were saying earlier like just before we we started recording knowing kind of how the process works made you a lot calmer about not hearing not getting an email from your editor or everything going quiet for a while do you think that aspect of it um you would kind of just advise people to just kind of sit back and and trust that things are happening behind the scenes even if they're not aware of it I think it's a really delicate balance because of course you know publishers are just people in the way that everybody is Mm. just people there are people who are really great at certain aspects of the job and less great at others or you know there will there will be people who will feel better than others or sort of better for for what you want out of your publishing experience than others um I would say you know what treat it it's it is a business it is a business uh, relationship you know the publisher is working with you mm. so you know if you have questions if you have concerns I think you know flag it with your agent for, you know I think your agent will have like a lot of context to see whether this is a whether they can say oh actually you know this is like a very normal part mm. of the process or whether they can say actually no this is quite unusual um, you know let's check it like you know, you don't have to have all the difficult conversations yourself. That's why you have an agent to, to do the difficult conversations for yeah. you. Uh, but if you have questions, you know, you can ask. I think that's that's kind of an important thing to do. The editors are, you may know, I think editors maybe seem scary because they're sort of quite a big part of this, you know, they are a big part of the publishing process. Um, but yeah, I don't think any editor has ever, has ever been that frightened of a question as far as I'm aware. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I think it's important to sort of ask questions um, and sort of, you know, know that it's okay to feel uncertain because the truth is, is that there are a lot of reasons, you know, there are a lot of options when it comes to publishing. Um, And I think, you know, know, my caveat is always, I only know this from what I have learned in publishing and, you know, what my, what my career in publishing is, it looks very different to other people's because it is such a wide, um, wide industry in that sense was there anything then that surprised you about the process even be it kind of you found it a lot harder emotionally to to deal with or there were times where you thought oh okay I understand what what my authors went through now yes it again it goes back to like the doubt and to you know I was very calm about the business aspect but I was not calm about myself (laughs) um and just having those really long stretches of time where you started to go oh my god did I write this the way I wanted to could I have done this better you know especially when the first reviews come like just don't look at the reviews Mm -hmm. it's like it's like I always say it's like sticking your hand into a hive and hoping for honey and just getting mostly bees or sometimes sticky bees and nobody wins nobody wins um you know, it's too late to change it. To, the honest truth is yeah. by then it is too late to change the book. You have <laughs> all the mistakes you have made, all the regrets you have, they're there on on print forever. Um, so there's no point in worrying about it, even though of course we all worry about it. I worried a lot about it. Um, so I think that was the most surprising thing that even though even though I knew this, I knew all of this going in and that, you know, really publishers are, you know, the publishers are looking to make money, they're looking for sales. So, you know, if you get like one bad review you know they're unlikely that's unlikely to have like a massive knock-on effect on your book you know 
even then it was still emotionally a lot harder than I thought it was. And I was like, oh, this, you know, this explains a lot. This is not like the like <laughs> the like classic laid back feeling I thought it would be. Um, but I think, you know, from what I can gather, a lot of people feel like this. So, you know, it's nice to know that sort of everybody, we're all sort of in in that boat of terror together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so finally, Georgia, can you give us a little tease, a little taste of what's coming next? What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so I am actually I'm late on my edits for this book. Um, I am working on a new standalone. Um, it is about a book thief who inherits a magical bookshop. Only lots of people are after this magical bookshop, including this very shady society um, and this rival bookseller who is a very attractive rival bookseller who also <laughs> really wants this bookshop for himself. Um, so, you know, it's going to have sort of ink magic and, you know, you know, sort of magical sort of estate sales and hopefully have that same kind of mix of, you know, sort of the, the fairy tale glamour, but also that kind of like edged darkness um, that the city of Stardust has. Brilliant. I mean, who doesn't love the idea of a magical bookshop? Georgia, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a delight to be on it. That was Georgia Summers talking about her fantasy novel, The City of Stardust, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.